Hello and welcome back to Fresh New Shorts, new short stories from award-winning writers. Today's story is A Nation the Size of a Thimble by John Blackmore and brings us back to Newfoundland. It's adapted from his postcard story, This Is What Winter Means, that won the inaugural Writers' Union of Canada contest. A man staying in a Halifax rooming house carries a terrible sadness deep inside from a life-and-death event as a boy. He shares his story with a woman living at the rooming house, who, like him, cannot escape the melancholy of what she's seen and experienced. A Nation the Size of a Thimble The pepper mill was a small titanic, and the salt shaker an iceberg. All supper long I stared at them through the haze of smoke and words. A few stiff drinks had loosened Leo's tongue before Mrs. Sarah laid out the meal. She encouraged him as she ranged about the room, delivering food and rolls and bowls of chow-chow, leaving lipstick ring cigarettes and three different ashtrays. Despite my efforts to steer the conversation, Leo was regaling us about Joey Smallwood and the bright promise of Canada. Even when another boarder objected to the notion, questioning the cost to the Dominion, Leo didn't skip a beat. Canada will get more than it ever gives. Seals, cod, air bases, sawmills, pulp and paper, shipbuilding. He marked off a litany of wheel on his accountant's fingers. You'll see money returning by 1955. Mrs. Sarah splashed more rum into his glass. Leo was her favorite boarder. He had brought a case of tea for her on his way to Boston for business. Finally, the rum did him in, right after the date squares and even before his God-blessed tea. With the dishes and politics cleared, I was handling the berg and pepper, moving them about in an aimless drift on the blue linoleum. She's our expert on the great ship, Mrs. Sarah said, motioning towards a woman still sitting at the table. Jenny visits the cemetery every day. The woman named Jenny nodded, but didn't look up. She wore a thin gray sweater with a bright red scarf around her neck. She was in her twenties, and a perfect foil to Mrs. Sarah, slender to her buxom, flax to her coal, sparrow to her gull. They buried more than a hundred of the drowned at Fairview, up near Bedford Basin, Mrs. Sarah said. It's where she goes. It's a long walk, but she's always out there. Did you have a relative on the Titanic? I asked Jenny. She shook her head. I remember when it sank. You can imagine, it was big news in Newfoundland. You are from Newfoundland too, Jenny said. Her accent cut the island into angular blocks. Mr. Leo was talking so much about the votes, but you, not so much. Mrs. Sarah looked at Jenny with pride. She was her project. Yes, I said. I don't pay much attention. I'll be in New York when the next vote happens. I suppose I'll come home to a new country. Our parish priest had a hair lip that made him lisp, and he had a profound dislike for Smallwood. He the thuppant who goaded Eve to offer her husband the fruit, he told my wife. But his admonition was no matter. My wife was sweet on Joey on account of his radio show, 
and when Joseph R. Smallwood came to curling in 1948, as promised, she fell for him in the flesh. The rally was supposed to be in Potter's Field, where kids played baseball with gear the Americans threw away, but rain squalled in from the bay. Instead, we were in the basement of the Presbyterian Church, as foreign a place as Timbuktu to her. She was giddy, and I was enjoying her excitement at committing, for perhaps her first time ever, something the priest would call a thin. Joey took the stage, fizzing with energy. We live more poorly, more shabbily, more meanly, he hectored us. Our struggle is tougher, more naked, more hopeless. We are not a nation. We are a mere miniature borough of a large city. He slapped his hand on the lectern at each pause. There was indeed a time when tiny states lived gloriously. That time is now ancient European history. We are trying to live in the mid-20th century. Post-Hitler. New world. The roar of them clapping and pounding their feet, caught up in the little man's electrical wiring like light bulbs. My wife sparkled with it. At home, she talked on and on about the glorious future we had with Canada. She smiled in her sleep. But I lay awake. The whole house finally grounded, save me. We are not a nation. I edged closer to my wife, but she didn't wake. She could always sleep. I woke at the slightest provoking. She slept through gales and blizzards, the ice crackling in the bay, the mice running inside the walls. Snow woke me. Frost woke me. I would draw the blankets tightly, but it didn't matter. I was always cold. The fog hid Jenny, so I didn't see her until I almost stepped on her. Her red scarf startling, like a drop of blood on a flannel sheet. She curtsied. I thought I'd catch you this morning, I said, to have someone show me this famous cemetery, but you must have been up ahead of Mrs. Sarah. Why do you want to see it? she asked. It sank on my birthday. I had just turned nine. She nodded, holding my statement in her mouth like a wedge of lemon. Do you work for the cemetery? I asked. Of course not. I'm a Jew. These are all Protestants. She waved her hand at the graves in the fog. Why do you come here, then? I come here for the sadness. There's too much joy in Halifax. I can understand that, I said. I nodded. It's what I felt about home, the bluster and talk like Leo. I shivered in the fog. I'm thinking of getting a cup of tea or a coffee. Would you like to come? I am not that kind of woman. I held up my hands. That's not what I'm saying. She turned her mouth down as she considered it. Unlike most people, she became more beautiful when she frowned. So you can have coffee. She pulled the wet gray wool to her thin frame. Water dripped down from a wave of hair onto her forehead, and she didn't wipe it away. Don't get the wrong idea, Jenny, I said. 
I'll see you at Mrs. Sarah's. She paused. My name is not Jenny. Mrs. Sarah gave me that name when I came to stay with her. She said I needed to be less jewful. I had a new chance. What is your name? I asked. She shook her head. Come for coffee. If you don't like happiness, I can tell you a sad story, I said. A flush came over her white cheeks. It was like I said the name of someone she knew. We sat in red vinyl booths at Mitzi's Diner. The smell of liver and onions roamed the air like a cat. It was more than 30 years ago, I said, playing with the salt and pepper shakers. I've never told this story to anyone, not even my wife. In March 1917, my father took a last-minute berth on the Florizel. Not that he was ever a fisherman, and certainly never a sealer, but he could sew a man's hand and set broken bones. That's all it took to be the doctor on a sealing ship. It never rains, but it pours, my mother said, finding the downside of this fortune. That winter, he also had the commission to deliver the first leg of mail up the northern peninsula, from Deer Lake to Woody Point. He had already bought a dog team for the job. He hymned and hawed, but finally agreed that I could make the runs alone while he was with the Florizel. I was almost 14. This could be our lucky break, a chance for two good incomes, and if he managed to be on a boat loaded with pelts, well, well, finally a good year. Me, I didn't care about the money. I loved the dogs. I still remember their names. It was my last run up the coast alone, the other two of no consequence, just driving the dogs north in the morning, a stay over and back the next day. It was clear and cold and blue when I set out for that third run. But by noon, clouds packed in from the coast. Snow started, and the wind roared down the long-range mountains, driving a blizzard at the dogs and me. We were blinded. I hung on to the sleigh for dear life. When things go bad, trust the dogs, my father had said. The wet wind cut through my wool jacket. I lost track of time and distance. I didn't even recognize it when the dogs had stopped in front of a small hut. My mitts were iced onto the sled. I unhitched the dogs, took the mail bag and stumbled into the hut, my feet frozen like blocks, and closed the door on the storm. I was chilled right to the core and moved like a drunk. One eye was frozen shut, but with the other, I saw a table with a candle stub on it, two chairs, a bunk, and a potbelly stove. The dogs huddled in a corner. I needed a fire. I knelt in front of the stove, shivering without control, and dumped the mailbag. Some twenty separate letters and one large envelope from the Dominion of Newfoundland War Office. Everything was wet. I sucked my freezing fingers to warm them and tore open the War Office envelope. There were two letters inside. One was addressed to Mr. James Bennett. It was wet too. But the second letter had been wrapped once in cloth and wrapped again twice in wax paper. It was handwritten 
addressed to Ellen. It was crumpled and creased and dirty, and it was dry. I lit the candle and read the whole letter. I read it over and over, over and over, mouthing the words, mumbling them. I held the letter away and tested my memory. If I stumbled, I went back to it again. Finally, I put the paper in the stove. I cracked the spindly chairs into tiny pieces and smashed the table. I rubbed the wax off another match and lit it. Pausing, I whispered the last lines of the letter and then brought the match to the letter to kindle the fire that saved my life. The next morning, I awoke amongst the dogs, sun slicing through cracks, catching their plumes of breath. I hitched the team and rode out. The lead picked up the trail and then drove on to Woody Point. People came out of their snow-buried houses to see the boy born alive from the storm. I stopped in front of the three churches as the crowd gathered. I called out for the Bennets. Nobody moved at first, and then a woman stepped forward. I gave her the war office letter, ink streaked down the envelope. She took it without a word, holding the letter away from her body like a dead rat. They waited to see who else I would call. Ellen, I said, barely turning breath into sound. Ellen. But I should have known who she was. A young woman was crying. Ellen came out from the crowd and stood five feet from me. She stared into my face. She was wearing a wool plaid skirt over woolen pants and the prettiest white wool mittens I had ever seen. Her eyes were as blue as winter. I motioned for her to come closer. When she was close enough so only she could hear me, I recited his letter from memory. I didn't stop or look up. I hardly breathed. Wet lines ran down her cheeks and froze by her mouth. Everything, everything I could see or ever imagine was stilled as if the sun had gone out and all the warmth was drawn from the earth. I took a pouch from my belt. That morning, I had scooped ash from the stove. I put the pouch in her hands, and I must have been unsteady because a scatter of ash spilled out on the white wool. It startled us. I was about to explain what had happened, what I had to do, but I didn't get the chance. She cuffed me across the face. I felt the grit mark my cold cheek. Sometimes I think the ash is still there. We didn't speak for several minutes. I shuffled the salt and pepper, shutting my eyes against the bright morning. That bright morning, 30 years ago. You asked my name, she said. I nodded. She turned her arm to me and raised the sleeve. She pointed to a mark on her skin, A30878. There is dignity in suffering, she said, but not in surviving. She reached into her purse for a cigarette. When you said you had a sad story, it startled me, she said. 
After the Americans released us, I returned to Berlin. Funny, you know, after everything. But it's where I was born. I am German, but I no longer have a country. It is no longer there. It will never be there again. From Berlin, I went to Paris. She blew out a stream of smoke. Of course, I didn't really live. I just kept surviving. She paused for a moment. I did sleep with men for money. She flicked her cigarette a number of times. At first, I slept with the rough ones, because I thought that is all I deserved. Then, the nice ones, to feel better. But in the end, I chose the ones who had a sad story. There were a lot of sad stories. Mitzi came over with fresh coffee and asked if we wanted food. Hot turkey sandwich with peas and mashed potatoes, today's special. Yes, I said, pointing to both places. What was the boy's name, she asked. Ed, Edward Bennett. They called him Eddie. It's good to have names, she said, rather than numbers. She stared out the window until our food arrived. She ate a little and lit another cigarette. Sunlight streamed through the blinds into her smoke. What did Edward say at the end of his letter, she asked. I still remembered it. Writing last words is far too large a thought. Forget me, I said. But then he seemed to have a change of heart. No, don't forget me. But please carry on. Just keep a little spot in your heart for me, the size of a thimble. It's a nice picture, she said. A simple thing, a thimble. She nodded in agreement with herself. Yet... Too small, I think, to truly last. Yes, I said. We both knew she was right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fresh New Shorts. If you enjoyed this story, please rate us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find the book a Physicist Guide to Love by John Blackmore on Amazon.com, .ca, or your country site. Please subscribe and come back to listen to us again.